Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. A precaution, please, if you've got your mobile phone with you, please turn it off. Hopefully having checked in through Canberra upstairs. My name's Alan Moore. I'm privileged to be the president of the Canberra and District Historical Society, and it's my pleasant duty to introduce the Canberra Orator for 2021. The oration is co-sponsored by the Society and the National Library of Australia, in whose temple of learning we gathered today. It stands in Ngunnawal country, on the land of its traditional custodians, whose priority we acknowledge, and whose continuing culture and traditions we respect. Although the Society is nearly 70 years old, and has commemorated Canberra Day in various ways almost since its inception, the oration goes back only as far as 2002, when Professor Don Aitken was invited to inaugurate it and chose as his theme, Canberra, a place and a name. Since then, distinguished citizens of our Athens by the Malonglo have been afforded the opportunity to reflect in public on an aspect of Canberra history or life and always on Canberra's naming day proper, 12 March. Then as now, the topic is left to them. Which brings me to Canberra, part of the nation's capital. A provocative title, but no less than we have come to expect of our orator. For those of you who don't know who Jack Waterford is, welcome to Canberra. You've clearly not <laughs> been here for long. Jack acquired a law degree and a reputation for student activism at ANU at a time when the first was an elective, but the second was just about compulsory. Although with hindsight, Jack and journalism were a natural fit, they found each other more or less by accident. Needing a job, in 1972, he joined the Canberra Times famously as a copy boy. The rest is history. For nearly half a century, from copy boy to editor at large of Canberra's first and only surviving daily, Jack has probed, exposed, critiqued and pontificated on issues great and small, national and local. As early as 1985, he was recognised by his peers as Graham Perkins Journalist of the Year for his work on freedom of information legislation. In 2007, he achieved national recognition by being appointed a member of the Order of Australia for service to journalism as a commentator on national politics and the law, and service to the community on Indigenous affairs. 2007 also saw him named Canberra Citizen of the Year for services to journalism and Aboriginal health. The latter was a personal as well as professional commitment. In 1977, Jack took two years leave from Canberra Times to work with Indigenous groups setting up medical services in Central Australia. He also assisted Fred Hollows in the War on Sandy Blight, otherwise known as the Trachoma and Conjunctivitis Program. On Indigenous disadvantage more widely, Jack stands in the great tradition of crusading journalism. He has never allowed Canberrans to look away or be complacent. Where injustice persists, it has not been for want of exposure by him. He is an exemplar for, exemplar for Peter Finlay Dunn's dictum that the purpose of newspaper journalism is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> Here then, without further ado, is your Canberra orator for 2021. Please welcome Mr Jack Waterford AM to address us on Canberra, part of the nation's capital. Jack. Thank you very much, Alan. And I too would like to begin by acknowledging the uh, 
Ngunnawal people and um, their elders, uh, past, present and to come. Um, I think perhaps typically for me, by finding my papers all in a, a bit of a muddle. <laughs> One gets used to people, um, almost always outsiders, who suggest that the whole idea of Canberra was a terrible mistake. Even perhaps Australia's largest white elephant, a waste of good grazing country, which is a lie. Not very, it's not very good grazing country anyway. <laughs> a folly, an expensive indulgence, um, which ultimately and inevitably produced self-reproducing bureaucrats and a governing class which has lost touch with the ordinary people of Australia and which was, as a consequence, mighty inefficient as well as in the grip of a host of trendy but ultimately un-Australian uh, obsessions. In some of these statements, particularly the uh, wittier ones, there might be a germ of truth um, deserving at the least a wry smile. But one thing that some of the critics fail to recognise, that if there had been no Canberra, there might have been no Federated Australia. And had a union of some sort ultimately be been formed without a Canberra, it might well have been one of an entirely different sort, perhaps not including Western Australia. There are a number of reasons why the Australian national capital is located well away from the capitals of any of the other states. The first and the most obvious one is that the poorer and less populated states feared that their views might get swamped by those of the larger states, particularly New South Wales and Victoria. It was on this account, in particular, that we ended up with a Senate system which gave an undue voice to states such as uh, Tasmania, South Australia, Western Australia and at that stage Queensland, um, though it has never yet reached the stage of giving such an undue voice to the people of Canberra. But the fear of the domination of small states by big states was not the only concern. If the national capital were to be the capital of the colony, Sorry, if national capital were to be Sydney, the capital of the colony, um, New South Wales might have been thought to have the strongest claim. But Victoria had relatively recently overtaken New South Wales as the financial capital of the nation, the state in which most banks, manufacturing and commerce and significant institutions were headquartered. New South Wales, moreover, was a free trade state. New South Wales politicians, in short, believe strongly that the capital should not be in Victoria, and just as importantly, Victorians did not want the capital to be in Sydney. Their arguments were not primarily focused on the convenience or their personal interest. They were as worried about the influence over the Federation of the permanent administration and the press, the media and the lobbyists who were already used to promoting their interests before the local state governments uh, parliaments and ministers. Canberra was in this sense a compromise. The priority claim of New South Wales was recognised, but it was agreed that the national capital should not be in Sydney, indeed not within a hundred miles of it. Pending the selection of a federal capital territory to be an area of at least a hundred square miles, the parliament would meet in Melbourne. 
Canberra and Yass, the ultimate selection was a splendid compromise between places as diverse as Orange and Armidale and uh, Delegate, not least because New South Wales undertook to construct a railway line between Yass and Canberra to make it more accessible to politicians coming from the south. New South Wales was somewhat reluctant to give away any of its well-established townships such as Queanbeyan or much in the way of good grazing or farming country but happy enough to hand over fairly mountainous scrub. The deal ultimately saw more than 900 square miles being handed over to the Commonwealth. The institution, sorry, the treaty which saw the passage of um, the ACT out of New South Wales to the Commonwealth is of constitutional status. Um, and Commonwealth negotiators were particularly keen that the territory be capable of being self-sufficient, particularly for water, and they made a hard bargain about eminent domain over the headwaters of the Molongo and the Queanbeyan rivers, even though they were to remain in New South Wales. And in an act of great farsightedness, the Commonwealth also got New South Wales to agree that Commonwealth would have access to the waters of the Snowy River for future hydroelectricity purposes. This was about 50 years before that came to pass. What was also intrinsic to the enthusiasm for a separate capital was the fact that a good many Australians, including a wide cross-section of the founding fathers and first politicians, had read many of the works of Henry George and his, Sydney, and his single tax league. The so-called Prairie Socialist had a strong influence throughout Australia, including in some pre-federation schemes to open the land to free settlers, to use leaseholds as a form of planning control and for value capture when the price of land increased with community development. People saw land taxes as providing the basis of a self-sustaining city, one which could simultaneously provide cheap land on which settlers could build while also providing a form of title against which they could borrow. The Griffins themselves were suffused with ideas about how a city could grow on a human scale, with facilities and community services so located as to provide an ideal environment for the local citizens, while being closely adapted to the great and the grand purpose of being a national capital. Griffin was not only about a life support system for a Parliament House, but one uh, supported by a small population of senior public servants located here, at least during the parliamentary season. He knew that the city would grow, even if he had little idea of the extent. He knew that it would attract visitors, not least because of his spectacular plans for a lake. He wanted significant national, cultural and recreational services and facilities as well as ones adapted to the needs of a local, well-educated population. He wanted grand avenues and significant treescapes. But he also wanted, and integrated into the plan, was model housing and community facilities and services so designed as to demonstrate to Australians and to the world how high quality could also be economical. Walter Griffin did not build or design houses, although some of Marion Griffin's sketches uh, illustrated their ideas. But he planned them with access to clean water, 
sewerage for spare capacity with electrical services. His streets had curbs and gutters. None of these were routinely built into ordinary housing, let alone public housing at the time. In many parts of urban Australia, indeed, sewerage systems were not to come for another 50 years, while the year of the great utilities providing water and electricity was only just beginning. Now, one doesn't have to parse or analyse which part of the city plan involved the genius of the Griffins or of bureaucrats and local planners who were soon jostling with him about the details. There were also separate influences over the Garden City concept and opportunities as well as detriments, particularly in relation to funds caused by Australia's entry into the First World War. When the city was first imagined, Australia had one of the highest standards of living in the world and embarking on federation as well as on a great national capital project were measures of the optimism and self-improving zeal that encapsulated the age. Australians knew of great capitals, whether on the L'Enfant model in Washington or in Paris, London, Berlin, Budapest and St Petersburg, and soon to be in De New Delhi. There was no reason why a new but confident nation couldn't aspire to the same standards. A great city reflecting Australia back to itself, but also setting standards that other Australians could observe and imitate. All Australians wanted to be proud of their capital. And even while then, right-thinking Australians were cynical about politicians, with good cause too, they saw the removal of politicians from their ordinary environment as providing them with a fresh chance. Indeed, even the cold mornings in winter were an asset, given the idea that cold was better for productivity than tropical heat and humidity. There was also, of course, no great urgency about creating the capital in one big and complete go. With general principles laid down, there was to be no higgledy-piggledy development, let alone land speculation. The immediate priorities were the street layouts and the temporary parliament house, as well as accommodation for those who were to be sent to pioneer the new city. There was also the land for a building and development workforce, initially far bigger than any of the planned public service invasion. The city fathers and the constitution envisaged a local task of municipal administration over and above the building and development of great government offices. There would be a university. For the time being, schools, healthcare and many community services, including local policing, would be contracted in through the New South Wales government. But it was always imagined that in due course, the city itself would develop such services and facilities and that they would be of the highest standard and a model to the rest of Australia. This was not a matter of an open checkbook or some entitled belief that nothing could be too good for the citizens, the inhabitants of the capital. Indeed, the very idea of staging the development of such services involved a close eye on economy that some of the critics recognised. But the principle was that nothing that was interim would effectively uh, doom future services to be second rate. Of course, many of the people come, who would be coming to make a home of this capital were just the sort of people with the policy skills and the imagination, having long been focused on looking for the best outcomes from scarce resources. The politicians, the planners and the policy officials had here a sort of tabula rasa on which they could debate and settle projects 
without being compromised by old accommodations and assumptions, many of which had emerged out of the corruption of 19th century Australian politics. The winning design of Walter and Marion Griffin embraced the geography and the environment, binding it together in particular with the idea of the lake. The self-sufficiency projects began with the development of a forestry industry, a brickworks, even a light railway. The great Canberra Govey came into existence, deliberately designed so as to allow economical expansion. The first schools, Ainsley, Tilopia and Canberra High were built, setting standards in Canberra architecture that have yet to be matched. If the plan had some rigidities as well as some concepts that those who embraced it didn't seem to know and understand, it was also flexible. And every bit of that proved necessary in the end. Any idea that Australia had a great standard of living and was one of the richest in the world uh, was dashed by the waste and the destruction of World War I and soon afterwards the Spanish flu pandemic. The timetable was slowed down and so was some of the sense of urgency about meeting milestones, particularly about the opening of a parliament. But didn't stop people continually dreaming about the project or pushing to keep it going if on a slower timetable. And if it brought some delay and some compulsive interference with the grand plan, that was not primarily motivated by a desire to kill the project altogether or to cut it down to size. Alas, Australia was soon plunged into the Great Depression and the project virtually came to a halt. Although World War II led to more people being transferred into Canberra as a part of war planning, serious shortages of materials limited rapid expansion. And it was not until 1955 that Robert Menzies, who has a good claim to being one of Canberra's founding fathers, set off the project again. Now, I tell this tale not so as to give a potted history of the building and development of Canberra as a national capital. What I'm wanting to emphasise instead is that the idea of a great national capital in which Canberra, sorry, in which Australians could take great pride was always there. A project that would expand Australian sense of themselves, that would show and demonstrate the best that Australia had on offer. A place that might be far away from a Perth or a Townsville, but which could be sustained in the imagination because Canberra was to be the theatre of politics and public administration and also, as the capital developed it into a place that one could visit as a tourist and find some pri uh, pride and achievement. And in much the same way that one could instantly evoke Sydney with images of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and later the Opera House, Canberra was soon to have its national insignia, not the least the television view from the top of Mount Ainsley down past the War Memorial, Anzac Parade and across to the old and then the new Parliament House, which uh, is a sight as familiar to every Australian and is as splendid as a vista from the White House to the Capitol buildings. We've now filled in much of the uh, National Triangle, although I don't think the book is ever closed on what can still be done there. National and international tourists see both with pleasure, as they do with the design of the new Parliament House. But many take as much pleasure from the lake, 
the natural and human scale setting in the Australian bush and some of the magnificent avenues and streetscapes of the original design. One could say that the focus of this admiration is in the so-called national areas and in their setting in old North and South Canberra, the only part of the city that the Griffins pencilled in. But we ignore at our peril the enduring idea that Canberra as a whole, from Gungahlin to Tuggeranong, Belconnen to Molongo, was to be a model city rather than just another hodgepodge of greedy short-term development. A part of the modern tragedy, of course, is that the modern freestanding Canberra house is on average more than twice the size of the original modest but adequate govy, but is plonked on blocks of land of about half the size. This has the effect of reducing the capacity of planners to incorporate trees and shrubs and to create attractive streetscapes. We are, as a result, getting significant uglification, lower building quality and design standards as well as all of the appearance of endless and wasteful sprawl. But we're also tying our hands behind our backs in terms of reducing our environmental footprint and making a meaningful contribution to climate change. In the 1950s, the 60s and the 70s, thousands of mostly young public servants came to Canberra from all over Australia to work in government. Along with them came more thousands to build houses and flats for them to provide them with legal, accounting and medical services in the private sector, or to staff retail establishments and restaurants. As our Canberra growth has slowed, more of our workforce was actually born in and educated in Canberra. But it still has features that distinguish us from most other Australian cities. One very important feature, for example, is that most Canberrans are outward looking. Born here or not, most have significant numbers of relations in other uh, states and cities from places they or their parents, perhaps these days their grandparents, originally came. A person from Canberra is far more likely to visit a state capital to see relatives than a person from Sydney to visit Melbourne or Brisbane, let alone Hobart Avenue, Adelaide or Perth. And that's quite apart from the fact that she is, or was, until the shutdown is forced by the pandemic, about three times more likely than citizens from other states to travel abroad, whether for work or for pleasure. When I began at the Canberra Times about 50 years ago, about the most serious way of annoying our readers, worse even than getting the cryptic crossword clues wrong, <laughs> was to fail to carry the South Australian or the West Australian AFL club scores every Monday morning. <laughs> This was before an AFL. We had the VFL, the SAFL and the WAFL, and each within its jurisdiction had fanatical and very tribal followers who showed, their, showed no mercy whatever in their abuse of innocent copyboys if the results were not in the paper. Meanwhile, in those days, one could scarcely even find the VFL results in the Sydney newspapers. In Federated Australia, much of the stuff of news directly affected the local population comes from the state or territorial rather than the national level. A Queanbeyan person is much affected by decisions made in Sydney about children's school or childcare services, about police and ambulances and about healthcare. Likewise, the interest of a person from Bendigo in such news is focused on Melbourne, not Sydney. It's likewise for Canberra, of course, 
and any news service provided from here will give a good deal of attention to our local assembly and the decisions our ministers make on health and community services, policing, education and health and so on. But the very nature of our population and its interests has meant that we must usually give far more attention to state news from elsewhere than most other news services. First, the primary interest of the people of Canberra, even those not directly involved in the public service, is politics and public administration and information. Willy-nilly, decisions made in Canberra can affect all of Australia and those who are advising about such decisions or lobbying about them or actually implementing the decisions have a keen interest in what is going on in the rest of the country. That is an interest not always shared by news services coming from state capitals. I used to joke that one could read the Melbourne Age for a year and not realise that Sydney existed. <laughs> or that one could read the Sydney Morning Herald for a year and not realise that Strathfield or Parramatta even <laughs> existed. Both newspapers, this is when they were newspapers rather than general providers of news, mostly through the internet, had teams of journalists covering national politics here in Canberra, but few in other state capitals, and they were otherwise very parochial and inwardly focused. Of course, the, the Sydney and Melbourne folks think themselves cosmopolitans. They deeply resent any suggestion that they, citizens of the world, could be regarded as parochial. In one sense thus, Canberra has just the sort of population, educated, engaged and attentive to trends that those who imagined a national capital envisage. But there are some emerging trends which could reduce the sense of a shared national ownership and partnership in the national capital. John Howard once remarked of Canberra that it was a very funny place. It looked like Kalara and voted like Cessna. Um, it varies a little around the seats, but that's true enough, at least unless the Labor Party has taken Canberra South too much for granted, something that has happened twice over the past 50 years. But Canberra is different in other respects as well. Let me give you one example. The Bureau of Statistics divides the Australian population into quintiles, each of 20% of the population, depending on their socioeconomic status, which is affected generally depending on their social class and the type of work that they do, their level of, of education and their income. Most of the top class, the so-called AB class, uh, belong to the professional and managerial classes. The C quintile, next down in the socioeconomic status, could be said to be white-collar workers, while the next quintile, or D, are generally in the skilled trades and so on. Around Australia, the quintiles are each about 20% of the population. In Sydney and Melbourne, indeed in most of the state capitals, that proportion is maintained. In Tasmania, the whole is somewhat skewed with significantly fewer in the higher SES levels and rather more in the bottom levels. But Canberra is quite sui generis. More than 50% of our population belongs in the top quintile, which is to say they take their place in the top 20% of the population. Nearly 30% belong in the next quintile, which is to say that more than two-thirds of the population belongs to the top 40% of the population. That's not a matter of dry statistics. 
However one looks at the Canberra population, one sees it as including disproportionate numbers of the best educated, by far and away the highest proportion of PhDs in the population, and higher than average proportions of graduates. Jobs and incomes are there to match. That is not to say, I emphasise, that Canberra does not have significant pockets of poverty and disadvantage, but even there, proportionately, the nation's capital is not usually near the top of the list. Put in another way, the average resident of Canberra has an income and general standard of living perhaps 20% higher than the average in any other Australian city. There are suburbs or suburban agglomerations in other cities which have on average wealthier people, the Taraks, the Rose Bays and the Peppermint Groves, for example. But these sit in the middle of areas of much lower average standards of living. When I put Canberra at the top, I'm speaking of the average of the whole city, the wealthier sections, the medians, and those who are worst off. Depending how, on how one measures it, indeed, it is quite possible that the average standard of living in Canberra is the highest of any substantial city anywhere in the world. Indeed, even the average for Australia is right up there at or near the top. Depends in part on what one puts in the measure and what one omits. By some standards, Australia is pipped by countries such as Finland and Denmark, Switzerland and Germany. We often go up the scale compared with them when one puts into, in um, balance uh, climatic uh, conditions and uh, creature comfort. Uh, sometimes those making the evaluations fail to give the credit we might to matters of such as lifespan and net wealth. Perhaps the experience of the past year will put national performances in pandemic morbidity and mortality into the balance. If so, Australia would rise further in the firmament, whether because of our being an island, because we blockaded our borders, or because we had some good political management. Most industrialised countries, particularly the ones in North America and Europe, with whom we generally compare ourselves, had infection and death rates 20 to 30 times ours. I don't want to labour the point, but one might remark that Canberra also generally rates better than the rest of Australia, and Australia rates near the top of the world in good health. I'm not referring to some combination of public and private health expenditure or hospital beds per citizen, statistics of community inputs rather than outputs. I'm talking about longevity, uh, of longevity in the community without significant disabling conditions, about immunisation rates, infant and maternal mortality statistics, smoking rates and averages for mortality from trauma, including violence and uh, traffic accidents. It's also mirrored in crime rates, which by world standards are very low and which are significantly lower in the ACT. We can't, of course, be too smug. Violent crime rates may be low, but the incarceration rates for people in the underclass, including that part of the Aboriginal population which is in it, are very high, perhaps the highest as a proportion of the population in Australia. I haven't come here to bore you with statistics designed to make everybody complacent. The people of Canberra do very well. They may enjoy the highest standard of living in the world, and if they don't, they're on average right up there. That standard of living, one might say, is a standard to which billions of the world's citizens, even in nations such as the United States or parts of southern Europe, to which they can only aspire. 
we may be paradise. We're safe. We have good shelter. We have, I should think, more square metres of roof over our head per person than any nation on earth. We have clean water and excellent secure food supplies, even in times of drought. We have abundant reserves of energy, including natural energy. We have probably more vehicles per household than any other country on earth. We have one of the world's longest lifespans, and it is generally improving by comparison with some countries, such as the United States, where it is now declining. We have ed excellent educational systems of high standards and high participation rates. Our unemployment rates are low, even if in the aftermath of the pandemic there's still too much underemployment and a disproportionate exposure amongst the young, the old and the unskilled. Our tax rates are very low. Our economy, local and national, is in good shape. Now, the first problem is that, and this may be in part a, a reflection of that smug situation in which we find ourselves, that there seems less sense of partnership between our city fathers and all the rest of Australia in the stewardship of a common vision of a national capital. That is to say, one which belongs to all of us. The National Capital Authority, so far as it takes any trusteeship role on behalf of all Australians at all, has more or less withdrawn from an act of interest in anything except the lake and the National Triangle. It plays a bit of a role with the National Cultural Institutions in promoting tourism, but it does very little to engender any sort of public excitement or engagement around the idea that the Canberra project is a continuing one, a work in being and one still needing a regular a regular infusion of ideas and feedback from the wider Australia. We have good reason to believe that there are still national prides in institutions, but an impression is now created that the job of building the national city has now ended and that there is nothing left to do. And many of our great cultural treasures, the National Library here itself, for example, the National Gallery and so forth, are starving for want of money from uh, uh, efficiency dividends. This is a problem which is aggravated by the way in which so many politicians sneer at Canberra and public service generally when they're out of town. Those have fostered a sense of resentment about the city and have created an impression of it being a drag on efficiency and good government, full of people with a strong sense of privilege and entitlement but not much to contribute. It was always thus, I suppose, but to all sneers comes added ideology which is trying to cut down the size of government, the functions of government, and the ideas and the expertise of a professional public service. Opposed to this and coming to the fore are cabals of secretive cronies divvying up the loot. Just as once we despaired of journalists using the shorthand camera to describe the decisions made by the fly-in, fly-out crew and the political crowd, we now have to join the ignominy of often truly bad and partial administration using only a pretense of process and fair dealing as an alibi. Our politicians seem increasingly focused on short-term considerations, on political stunts and on winning the next election. What we do not get is long-term planning, long-term vision or the establishment of projects, a national arboretum, for example, that might take a century to realise. 
It seems to me that the problem is getting worse. Parliament, the parliamentarians, have less and less influence over the shaping of decisions or the expression of the popular will. There is little debate about policy, whether in government, in its or whether in parliament, in its committees, or even sometimes it seems within cabinet itself. What we are getting is mostly about political advantage or creating the public relations in appearance of doing something. <coughs> good decision making has been subverted by a good deal of exclusion of an independent public service from the last stages of debate and its substitution by a host of frankly political folk with a very transactional idea to, about politics. Groups with a special call on political understanding and empathy, Aborigines say, or aged Australians, or Australians with disabilities, are finding themselves having their concerns shunted off to public inquiries rather than to the wisdom, the experience and the learning of public servants. Pol politicians in res responding to the deferred reports have a marked tendency to deal with the, the issues as marketing problems, not ones calling for principle, patience and substance. Go governments are increasingly throwing serious sums of money at unimportant projects for public relations reasons, while holding intense discussions in Cabinet about how little spending, how much less, for example, than a war memorial extension, one can put into aged care to create an impression, which will at least last till the next election, that government knows or cares what's going on. Meanwhile, seemingly at all levels of government, the idea of public consultation has become a joke, increasingly contracted out to professional liars who were there to hold the front line while pre-arranged decisions are implemented by stealth. I've been professionally watching government one way or another for half a century. I can state with certainty that there's not a single government agency that even believes in anything beyond the facade of public involvement. It's like the Centrelink telephone service. Meanwhile, seemingly at all levels of government, the idea of public consultation, um, sorry, down the track I fear, a sense of disengagement, apathy or impotence will settle around the idea of public ownership and public involvement in the continuing national capital project. Territorial government pretends it doesn't care very much about national or long-term considerations, focused as it is on short-term management and the provision of uh, local services and focused as it is on maximising the immediate take from the running down of the primary asset that was intended for the funding of an ongoing camber, the land supply. National government and national politicians don't seem to care much either, particularly about articulating a long-term vision other than muddling along. The point is the most important point is, is that the very term capital means something more than a place or a name. It's, not, it's much more than somewhere where one cites a city. It also involves a sense of being a treasure, working stock from which one improves, repairs, develops and adapts. That's a treasure belonging as much to all Australians as to those of us who are blessed to be here. Attending to the task of stewardship seems to have proven too hard or too boring for those who have been trustees. 
it is a matter that's now too important for politicians. It really is time for citizens to get involved by their own mechanisms outside conventional politics before the whole edifice tumbles down, the capital distributed to our creditors. I will now invite our Treasurer, Julia Ryan, to come and move. Oh, you want questions? He's answered everything and there's nothing to say. Are there any questions? Or comments? Sir. Ma'am. Francis. Thank you, Jack. Is that all? Is that on? Yes. yes. Thank you, Jack. That was great. Um, about your last comments about time for citizens to get engaged, every time there's any major proposal, like the War Memorial or draining the lake, most of the submissions are against it. Yes. So, and there's all these NIMBY groups popping up all over town, but their voices are ignored. So what can else can ordinary citizens do if what they say is being ignored? The answer is... I don't know, but I don't preach a council of despair. We've only had things like social media and the internet really effectively for the last 20 or 30 years. We're still getting used to it. People like me scarcely understand it at all. <coughs> but there's no doubt about its potential to be a source of information, a source of mobilisation of people, a source of getting ideas around. Um, if you doubt that, and there's many, many things about politics, local, national or international, where you see ineffectiveness or you see the Donald Trumps or the stirring of um, you know, superstition and, um, and hatred, you can look at a few politicians who've been successful and inspirational in the modern day. You don't have to particularly like these or not. But if you look at, say, the way that Obama was elected... Uh, what was it, 12 years ago. He created a movement. He had not captured the Democratic Party apparatus. He recruited volunteers. He gave them particular forms of autonomy so that they could communicate directly with uh, uh, like-minded people. It was a movement uh, that revolutionised pol politics something that was reflected, I think, in a somewhat premature decision by the uh, Nobel uh, Peace Foundation to give him a uh, prize just for winning. <laughs> One has seen somewhat the same thing in France. Again, uh, one has seen as well, although this was a case of somebody ultimately spectacularly unsuccessful, in the way that Jeremy Corbyn could dominate the British Labor Party, even though he was hated and detested by most of its uh, paid officials and representatives because he had very strong popular support. So one doesn't just have to look at the way in which a Donald Trump, say, has used the media or social media to his, their political advantage. There are alternative narratives which suggest that people can actually have an influence on politics. Some of the things, moreover, that I think are a bugbear of politics and 
possibly a source of a lot of the short-termism. Opinion polls, say, for example, although I have to admit that they've been very much discredited in recent times. But one of the impacts of opinion polls is that people are continually monitoring what other people think about things, and politicians lo often lose their nerve quite quickly. You know, Bob Carr, as Premier of New South Wales, um, made 50% new policy uh, after breakfast every morning after when he'd heard Alan Jones. You know, the, the power of organised public opinion is very strong. The power of what one might call decent groups, citizens' groups, can often more than match the organised power and resources of very well-resourced and, and politically strong lobbies. If you want an example, look at the success of the environment movement in mobilising Australians or co Aboriginal causes about sacred sites and development and so on. Um, there are various decent equalising sort of mechanisms already at work that neutralise some of the, the money, the resources and perhaps a year of prominent politicians that are so often there. We're seeing an awful lot of very tiresome politics at the moment. Um, in Australia as much as anywhere else, and, we're, and there's a lot of argument, say, in relation to the recent sexual assault debate about whether politicians or some of them in particular get it. But what you're seeing as well is events over which they have no control. The, uh, the rape crisis that has enveloped the government in the past three or four weeks is something that right at the moment they can't get out of. No, no spin, no announcements, none of the conventional marketing techniques has yet got the government out of the hole. So, yes, be very cynical about how far you can go or what you can achieve, but don't despair. I think we're learning some things about how to organise, how to mobilise and how to make change. Yeah, thank you so much, Jack. Um, and uh, I'd note your comment about the current uglification of Canberra, and I sadly can't, couldn't agree more. I, I will disclose myself as a freshly elected MLA for the Canberra Liberals in the Legislative Assembly, Peter Kane. And um, I do despair, I think, that their planning vision at the moment of the current regime is to work very much hand in glove with developers to produce something that's very much out of balance, in my opinion. So what do you have as a suggestion for generating a whole of Canberra capital city centred vision for our beautiful city? Well, there are some great projects that we need to get going with right away. There's just no time to waste. One example is, is that most of our noble avenues, our grand avenues in old Canberra, have reached the end of their useful life. They need to be replaced. They need to be replaced in an organised way rather than in a hurried scurry as they begin falling down on us. Some of them already are. Um, the, the preservation of the lake, I think, is still an important sort of focus um, of things because if we're not careful about it soon, 
I think it will be surrounded all around by um, sort of surface paradise style um, uh, high rises. Um, I, um, I don't know the form of words that's available to you, but the, the sense of some crisis in the air um, I think can be fairly easily conveyed to Canberrans who've had for a long time an uneasy feeling that our infrastructure is deteriorating, the, the national capital of which we're all so proud is getting scruffier, that the calibre of services being provided in our healthcare system or our education system needs a major form of renewal and in some cases a major form of rethinking. I, I'm, I praise our schools but it seems to me a very strange thing that we're operating on a model that was established in 1975 and have not had a fundamental review of the way in which we organise it. That was before the computer, before the internet and so forth. Now, it was a wonderful scheme which almost immediately projected Canberra, as if it wasn't already, but into the sort of forefront nationally and internationally of, of a good education system. But we haven't had a good look at it and, and uh, done anything more than some tweaking of it for now 45 years. Um, our hospital is in the course of falling down, frankly, is the right sort of word. But willy-nilly, we're building a new block here and a new stairway between this place and, uh, and whatnot. It's time to imagine something like, to say something like, by 2030, we're going to have a brand new hospital, a 21st century hospital that is going to be a model of the way a community such as Canberra and a wider community such as southern New South Wales is served by the best technology available and the most efficient ways of delivering patients from here to there. Instead of having endless tack-ons and so forth and, you know, places that are impossible to park or get access to because of all of the provisions that have been made for the specialists and so forth, we're going to incorporate that into our planning right now. A politician, a local politician, could make something of engaging the community in this and getting in involved as well, some debates about what sort of services we ought to be focusing on there, whether we need another great array of um, facilities for surgery or whether we need more investment in public health, for example. Um, but no, it's another area where I think nobody is really in charge, where those who want to take charge and do the right thing often can't do anything very much because they're being particularly micromanaged from above uh, over every little, uh, every little problem in part because of the intensity, I must confess, of uh, media scrutiny. Um, but it could be a project, that, if you like, that got people excited. It could be a project that actually made a quantum leap in the performance of healthcare in Canberra. 
you know, at the end of the day, it won't even matter very much because the propensity of most people in Canberra, even we people who are ageing somewhat, to be healthy is something that is entirely independent of an organised healthcare system. <laughs> um, but we could at least have a lovely looking one or an efficient looking one or one which was far better adapted to the acute healthcare needs of that small proportion of our population who don't happen to be well. Jack, you spoke in rather positive terms about the general health and prosperity of yep. the Canberra community. But you also mentioned the very high incarceration rates of the Indigenous community. That attracts very little attention. One former Chief Minister writes about it regularly, the head of a community an Aboriginal community organisation often expresses concern. But there is little widespread concern. Do you see any prospects for community organisations or others enhancing awareness of this and of finding a real resolution? Well, I think it is or ought to be a matter of national shame. We have been, we in Canberra have been comfortably tutting at the Northern Territory and at Western Australia and at Backblocks Queensland for their effectively racist policies or the differential outcomes of a justice system for decades and decades, and yet our own performance is worse. More children are being stolen, more Aboriginal children are being stolen out of their families in the ACT than in any other part of Australia. And they're being stolen or taken away for their own good, of course, not just because they happen to be black, um, at a rate about three or four times what it was in the infamous 1950s, 60s and 70s for which Kevin Rudd so movingly apologised um, these eight, nine, ten years ago. Um, the contradiction... Most Canberra people are of liberal temperament in favour of, of doing things to help. If policy about, say refugees or anything like that were determined in, in the ACT, the outcomes would be entirely different from what we get at the moment. Likewise, in Globo, with Aboriginal Affairs. Why is it that our performance is actually so bad? Um, well, I'm not going to get into sort of an economic discussion or analysis of crime, but the primary reason why the incarceration rate is so high is because all too many of our of Canberra's Aboriginal population, about 50% of that Aboriginal population, belong to and are trapped within an underclass. An underclass they can't get out of because of their poor health, their poor education, their lack of job skills, and in many cases, you know, dysfunctional family problems. Uh, and drug abuse and so forth. The magistrates are not rushing around looking to throw Aboriginal people into jail, but because they are such a large proportion of the Canberra underclass, probably 50 or 60 per cent of it, um, they, they are getting you know, markedly differential treatment, as is the other parts of the underclass, of course. 
A person can steal $80,000 from a uh, Canberra retail store and be lucky in this uh, territory to get three months in jail. A person can steal somebody's, or make a false claim for $50 worth of um, social security entitlement and get three years. There's something very odd and perverse about the way we operate affairs. And, you know, if it were just the Northern Territory, I would sneer, but I'm really embarrassed to say that it's happening in our midst. Yep. I just wondered if you had any reflections on, um, you know, as, as, as a born Canberran and watching that evolution of the, the sneer, the, the external sneer towards Canberra and potentially how that's evolved in, um, I guess, seeing the recent experiences that Canberra has gone through with fires and, and smoke and how perhaps there's been a... Has there been a maturing of uh, a sense of the rest of Australia appreciating that Canberra is one of we bleed the nation? Too. Yeah, we bleed too. Um, but but also that um, I, I guess a growing awareness that there is a difference between the bubble and the rest of us. Um, I don't know any thoughts on that. Well, I think you know obviously that the so-called Canberra bubble, so far as it exists at all and is not just a marketing abstract, refers to a small and fairly intense group of a political class, which includes significant aspects of the media, I admit, <coughs> but which does not embrace the people of Canberra. Um, it is said that outsiders sort of think of us as fat cats and with no idea of what's going on and so forth. The truth is, we mostly see that people actually identify with us reasonably well and can empathise with us when we have bushfires and, and, and so forth. It's, it's not a problem, but the, the problem is that the process of a certain dehumanisation of us in the abstract has been a quite deliberate one. Um, politicians sneer at the people of Canberra usually when they're in Wagga, of course, or in um, Wyala, as a way of explaining away <coughs> their own failure to achieve anything for the community. Um, there's a running inference that Canberra gets much more than anywhere else, when the truth is that in most parts of Australia, the subvention um, per capita is far higher uh, than in than in Canberra, that's you know the Northern Territory gets five dollars per head for every um, dollar that the, the people of Canberra get per head. That's in spite of the fact that because we're very bourgeois, very comfortable, high wage earners, high consumers, we pay three or four times as much GST per head as the uh, good folk of the Northern Territory. When I say good folk, of course, I'm referring to the white population in Darwin and in Alice Springs, which has abstracted the many of the millions of dollars which are actually specifically allocated to do something to make change in Aboriginal affairs, but which are not actually going out into settlements. Um, so, yes, I think at a human level, there's quite a bit of um, 
sympathy and understanding, or at least people appreciate very well that those, you know, faceless Canberra people who have it so good are in fact our aunties and uncles and so forth, much, much closer to us in many respects, as I say before, than a person from Sydney can identify with in Melbourne. I would think that the average person in Sydney has at most two or three relatives in Melbourne. The average person in Canberra probably has at least ten relatives in both Sydney and in Melbourne, or in Adelaide. And they travel there, and they keep in touch with their family. They even follow their goddamn football team still <laughs> with, with as much passion and zeal. You know, so we are connected, we are in with it, and we should really resent it when people like, say, Scott Morrison or National Party officials, I think, are the most infamous at this and sort of pretending that, that they, they are in touch with the real people and that we live in some sort of cloud cookie land. Thank you, Jack. I don't think we've really got time for any more questions, I'm afraid. One more? Yeah. No, sorry, one. Is one deck there? No, I think I think we've got to finish. All right, I'm all right. I'll give this out fairly shortly. Can now I now invite our treasurer, <laughs> Julia Ryan, to move a vote of thanks. Well, what I what a wonderful and thought provoking and informed uh, address we've just had from our Canberra Day orator. One, of course, we expect from our, um, I'm sure most of us are avid readers of his column in the Canberra Times, so that's why we have such a good and large audience today and our expectations were more than met, I think. Uh, I have, I was thinking myself, when I first came to Canberra, 1963 from Queensland, I thought I was in the Fabian paradise. <laughs> and in, in many ways that's endured, although we have to fight tooth and nail to keep it. <laughs> yes. And what a litany we heard of those criticisms, some of which we know, you know, good sheep paddocks ruined, all that. But we, putting them all together like that <laughs> was a very useful thing to have to put our hands on. And finally, I, I like our call to action, our call to community action, to keep it, keep it as a national capital that's a model for everyone. And thank you very much, Jack, for raising our consciousness. <laughs> thank you.